0: My brothers and sisters, it is my pleasure to, to be with you and to share with you this morning. So uh, just before we begin, I, I want you to pause with me so that we might go to our Father and, and address him as we look into this word today. Our Father, Almighty God, Father of our Savior Jesus Christ, yea, our Father, Blessed be your name. We thank you for this moment, the immensity of this moment. We thank you for the wonderful opportunity we've had thus far, as we personally and corporately worshipped you. Thank you for the opportunity. And now, Lord, as we come to this moment where we want to see you and experience you personally through your word, I ask personally that you will give me clarity of thought. Cause me to communicate your word, not mine, so that I might effectively and accurately speak to your people. Lord, I ask on their behalf as well that you will give them understanding. And having understood, give them a heart of obedience. These things, Father, I ask in your son's name, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. In your bulletin, the caption is, Emancipated to Slavery. Something seems highly contradictory with this, but what's in a name? We call ourselves Christians. What does this really mean to you and to me? But more importantly, what does this mean to God? This morning and this afternoon and this evening, you will come back, won't you? I want to direct your attention to this topic, emancipated to slavery. What's in a name? I believe that the sum total of all that we currently believe comes out of a series of relationships. Some familial, some intimate, some casual, some professional, and yes, some spiritual. What's in a name? For example, what is your current name? Where and who influenced you bearing that name? For some of you, you like your name. You like the sound of your name. For others, you are very extreme. You hate your name. And then there are those who could care less. What sound... It comes of course with their name. But what's in a name? My first name, as most of you know, is Wenly. I need to spell that. W E N L Y. Most people say I have, that's a strange name. I, where did that come from? I don't know. So I called my mom last night to get an update. She is still on Andros. I called her shortly after 7 p.m. I said, Mom, uh I need to ask you a question. Pause me and go ahead. Ask the question. I said, where did... Where did my name come from? She said, me dinner. Interpretation, I don't know. So, she, in a sense, then she explained further. She said, I, I can't remember. Okay, that's, that's understood. Now, as far as I know, and I'm aware, my mother and my father never went to China, as far as I know. And, um, back in the last millennium when I was born, they had not at that time have ever even met a Chinese. Take that. And so, I, I, but I found out the nearest thing they came to a Chinese or to China was having a China closet. But I found out from a colleague of mine that Wenli has its origin from China. So I have Chinese roots. And I found out that the word means, Wenli means cultured. Unliterate. What's in a name? I believe that what it is, as I mentioned earlier, everything that we currently, the sum total of all that we currently believe, is influenced by relationships. Out of your relationships, your belief system emerges. Out of what it is you believe, it affects your attitude. Your attitude affects Your behavior, your behavior, your character, your character, your destiny. What's in an aim? If your belief really affects your attitude and your attitude, your behavior, your behavior, your character, your character, your destiny, it is safe to say that what you believe is equivalent to your conduct and your life. If I was to, without knowing your name, what to study you or case study just to observe you over a period of time, I can tell, generally speaking, what are some of the things you like? What are your preferences? What is it that makes you laugh? What is it that stresses you, ticks you off, and form that's how this person responds to this circumstance or this situation from time to time. The Bible refers to Christians by many terms, many names, many designations, more than 175, if you care to count. Each of them being very descriptive of what it means to be Christian. There are some people, my guess, the majority of you seated here this morning would call yourself Christian. I am Christian. I am a Christian. What does that mean? Some of the names in scripture you are called, you're know, the called. For example, some of you might remember being called the flock. Some like the other name. Living stones, you are a kingdom of priests, you are first fruit of his creations, you are witnesses, disciples, believers, brothers, saints, followers of the way. Let me just narrow down five. Saints, sounds good. Living sacrifice, that's also what we are called. We are called ambassadors. But think about this. All of these names, when you hear, for example, ambassador, what comes to mind? You are a diplomat. What's in a name? Do you ever pause, stop, to ponder, I am an ambassador, I am an envoy, an emissary, a diplomat, for who? Who sent you for Jesus Christ? Amazing. I'm an ambassador. But not only that. You are living sacrifice. Now, that's not very popular because we don't like to sacrifice. But we still do nonetheless. We complain in the midst of it. But I'm so glad we sang those songs we sang at the beginning. Tell it to Jesus and stand on him because he cares for us. And so we are ambassadors. We are saints. What does that mean? Saints. And you don't have to wait until you die a hundred years and then you are saint. Watch this new word. Watch it. You are sanctified. (laughs) No. The Bible calls you now in this moment a saint. But what does that mean? That you are holy. That you are set apart. You are consecrated. You are a saint. But also we are as it were, called pure virgins, the bride of Christ. What does that mean? Exclusively pure, chaste. That's us. We are also called the elect. Amazing. Elect. Who elected us? Isn't that amazing? I talked or mentioned sometime in the past about sometimes when we playing or played games as children, um if they had to pick a team, normally the person who's picked last is not very highly motivated because nobody everybody who's picking say, Oh man, he's the last person standing. All right, come on. But a lot of enthusiasm. But God has elected you and me to be a part of his mega plans for us. He wants to share himself with us. We are called the elect. God opted to include us. It is, as it were, God voted for us. Isn't that good? Does that do anything for you? Does that change how you feel about yourself when somebody else might not vote for you, not opt for you, not even to consider you, as we say, not even to give you the time of day? And God called you his elect. My brothers and sisters, do you know that the term Christian, for example, is only mentioned three times in all of Scripture? Three times. Acts chapter 11, verse 28, Antioch, first place, called Christian. Acts 26, 28, remember the fellow Agrippa? who said to Paul, hey, hey, you, you come close, boy. Your army has persuaded me to be a Christian. Then 1 Peter 4.16, Peter mentioned that it's okay if you suffer, but if you suffer because you are a Christian. Now, if you suffer because you've been teething, that's another matter. all right. But only three times in Scripture is the word Christian mentioned yet it became the dominant label for those who follow Christ. It was more than just a superficial or a convenient or popular religious term or designation. In Greek, I think the word is Christianoi for Christian. It was to be identified as Christ's disciples, a loyal follower of him. And so when we call ourselves Christians, this should change everything about us. We are now proclaiming to the world that everything about us, including our very self-identity, our values, our devotion, our worship, is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, to be a Christian in truth is no trite matter. It speaks loudly, I believe, and I believe it speaks eloquently to how we live, and yes, even how we die. What's in a name? In the middle of the second century in the Roman Empire, it was against the law to be a Christian. Wow. As a result, martyrdom and severe persecution were widespread. It was here in this context, during that time, during the reign of Emperor Marcus Antonius Augustus Aurelius. His mom gave him that, I sure. him. That we read about a Gaelic Christian named Sanctus. I read about this in the book, The History of the Church, From Christ to Constantine. I, I, I want to read to you something that happened to Sanctus at this time, in this environment where it was illegal to be called to be a Christian. Sancton was a deacon in vain. It was one of the heroic Gaelic matters. He exhibited a magnificent courage and nobility with and he withstood the entire range of human cruelty. Yet Sanctus was so determined to stand up to their onslaught that he would not even tell them his own name or his race or even his birthplace, or whether he was a free man or a slave. To every question they asked him, he replied in Latin, ready for this, Latin, I am a Christian. To every question, that's all he said, I am a Christian. This he proclaimed over and over again, and not another word did he hear or did you hear from him. Consequently, the governor and his torturers strained every nerve against him so that when they could think of nothing else to do to him, they ended by pressing red hot copper plates against the most sensitive parts of his body. These were burning, but Sanctus remained unbending and unyielding, firm in his confession of faith, fortified by the heavenly fountain of water, the one we've been singing about this morning. After a few days, people again put the matters on a rack to stretch them out, thinking that now that his body was swollen and inflamed, maybe a further application of the same instruments would defeat him. Unable as he was even to bear being touched by a hand, if this failed, they said they thought, um, and he died. They hoped it would put fear in the rest of those people who call themselves. Christian However, nothing of the sort happened. To their amazement, his body became erect and straight as a result of these tortures, and he recovered his former appearance and the use of his limbs thus, through the grace of Christ. His second spell on the rack proved to be not punishment, but a cure. Sometime later, scientists and his other um, colleague, other Christian brother, Maturus, along with two other persons, were taken into the amphitheater to face the wild beasts. And you're familiar with this sport in the Roman culture or Roman empire. An entertainment purposely arranged for the crowds. There before the eyes of all, Sanctus and his colleagues were again taken through the whole series of punishment as if they had not suffered enough before. Again, they run the gauntlet of whips in accordance with the local custom, custom. They were mauled by the beast and endured every torment that the frenzied mob on one side and the other demanded or hollered for on the other. This culminated in the iron chair. The iron chair in which you sat and your flesh was roasted. And Sanctus and his colleagues went through that experience, and the smell of their flesh almost was as if it was suffocating them. Not even then were their torment satisfied, you know, and so they grew more and more frenzied in their desire to overwhelm the resistance of the Maddis, but do you know what that but do what they might. They heard nothing from Sanctus beyond the words that he had repeated from the beginning. I um a Christian. The declaration of his faith, I am a Christian. Despite their prolonged and terrible ordeal, life still lingered. But in the end, they were sacrificed after being made all day a spectacle to the world. Finally, after six days, Six days' exposure to every kind of insult, the matter's bodies were burnt to ashes and swept into the Rhone River. My brothers and sisters, what does it mean for you today to be a Christian? What's in a name? This year, and for those of us who are here Calvi would know during the month of July, we focused on this is the 400th anniversary of the King James Version of the Bible. First printed in 1611. There's a word that is omitted, not omitted, that is changed, that is translated differently in the King James Version that I believe speaks eloquently, specifically to this designation that God has given to those of us who call ourselves Christian. There is just one word, one name. This word is slave. Slave. Now, I know for some of us, we don't like nobody to call me no slave. And we tell people that regularly. I'm your slave. I'm nobody's slave. I'm picking that up. I'm going for that. I'm nobody's slave. But I want to take you back to Scripture. And Scripture speaks about God designating his children, his followers. He called them slaves. And when you are called by God's slaves, I want you to know from Scripture that you are in good company. Abraham was called slave of God. Moses, slave of God. Joshua, slave of God. David, slave of God. When I say slave, there's an image that I'm sure forms in your mind. But if I change that and I say servant, does that change? Is there a difference between a servant and slave? Don't answer that out loud. i am come back to that. But you are in good company, not only in David, but Elijah and the other prophets as well. The word in Hebrew is ebed, E-B-E-D, ebed. And so as I said before, I know that there is a possibility of feeling uncomfortable, that the Bible, or God himself, calls his followers slaves. And I believe that this feeling finds a source in the stigma that is attached to the Western world and certainly to us, to what slavery really means, that was popularized during the 18th and 19th century. We are of the ilk of, how many of you remember Kuntakinte? Kinte? Yes, you know, Alex Haley, Mm mm-hmm the whole story there and how they were mistreated, the um, middle passage, and, and how that whole experience was and those who profited from that experience. So when we hear and we use the word slave, we are thinking back then. We're not thinking back about the biblical application of slave. Let me ask out of curiosity and see if you agree. When you hear slave, what is one word that is indicative or representative of a slave? Thank you. I heard that loud and clear. Obedience. Slave. You are owned. Now, some people say, I ain't nobody own me. I is my own whatever gender you are. And by the way, there's only two gender. All right. You say that. Nobody owns me, so that's a very offensive term. But when we go back to, to the Bible, which is before the 18th and 19th century, there's a different picture. And so I do not believe that what the images that we would have been exposed to from the 18th, 19th century of the Ilk, of the Kunta Kinte era speaks accurately to slave that is applied. In the first century, first, second century, early centuries of our church, and before, as applied in Scripture. Slavery, for example, in the Old Testament, as early was mentioned as early as Genesis chapter 15. God speaking to Abraham tells him that his descendants would one day go into slavery. And just about three generations later, it took place, taken off into Egypt. You have a new pharaoh. A new sheriff in town who said, I, I know who you are, your people. And so they were harsh taskmasters. And you know the story. After being in Egypt for a long time under some brutal and torturous um, conditions, people prayed. God listened, God heard, and God responded in a marvelous, terrific, spectacular way. And the children of Israel were released from slavery under the Egyptian leaders or or government. But now they were, God calls them now, you are my possession. You are now under a new leadership. You are being purchased as it were. And so you are now into slavery of another kind. The imagery, the metaphor of slavery. Now you are to be obedient. You remember now in Egypt, do you think the children of Israel had options as to when they got up? Um, if they felt like working today in the fields, in the mud pits, I said, nah, not today. I feel good. You, you better get out there. You, you, cause if you, you, you get out there or you'll die trying. And they made sure, and they didn't care if you died. But now under a new master, you know the story of Israel. They would repent, behave well, did as God told them. And then after a while, they would leave their master and go back in following somebody else. And then they will again get spanked, punished. And then they'll cry out again for God, please help. And again, God in his mercy will take them back. And then they went back again, and this is back and forth. They went into Babylon, and again, they would again complain, and God would hear and respond back and forth. But you are... And not by the way, this, this slavery that Israel was not only national, in terms of all of Israel belonged to God. This was also felt on a personal level. Do you know that it is possible for an Israel... Like to sell himself into slavery. Yeah, he could see. look here, I shall be today. Um, look here, I can sell myself to you, you know, because a little problem financially insolvent. So he's, he would sell himself, but it was only like, there were strict rules. Read Exodus. That you can only be there for six years, but in the seventh year of Jubilee, you had let him go free. There's also, if he choose not to, he said, uh, especially if you had also, let me call them foreigners, aliens within the Israeli community, and they could also um, be designated slaves. If a man sold himself into slavery, he went in by himself, after the seventh year, he could leave the seventh year. If he went in with his wife and he had children, because he could say, look all of us go in, come on, be Jew and Jade, all of us we can sell already now to Brother out. You know. After seven years we all leave. But on the other hand, if I went in single and then my good master I found a wife, or he allowed me to have a wife, and we were blessed with children. After the seven, the seventh year, when it's time to leave, I gotta leave them because they ain't mine. Wow. That's a point where you say, mother, Wow. You know, you know. So, so, if, um, if by the way, in terms of the master's wealth, if the foreign person who was a slave, and if you didn't want to leave, by the way, the master had the opportunity to take your air and put it on the doorpost and then drill a hole in it. Kabang! That means now that you are there permanently, because that's a sign. So if somebody saw you with a hole in your air, uh, uh, you were somebody's slave permanently. By the way, it also says that if, for example, there was strict rules guiding how the master was to treat a slave. If the master struck his male or female slave so viciously that the slave died, master was to be punished, communal punishment. However, if you struck your slave and they survived a day or two, then the master There was no punishment accrued to him because the slave is his property. And that was how that was done back then. In the Greco-Roman era, slavery, this is before and during Christ's time, was a common institution in the fabric of the economy. By the way, in the 16th century, for example, by that time in England, slavery had so faded out that the meaning or the definition there was to be in chains, meant to be in chains or to be in prison. You can understand, I believe, why by the time we got to the 18th century, 19th century, where slavery had a negative connotation, and you don't want to add that to to Christians. And so maybe the translators, particularly of the early versions, um, the Bishop's Bible, the King James Version, the Geneva Bible, maybe not let's use ebed, let's change it to... Um, servant. And they did that very well. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, there were 799 times the noun ebed or slave is used. 290 times it was used as a verb. The King James Version that you might have never once translated ebed, slave, a slave. Always something different. As a matter of fact, Instead, 744 times it was translated as servant, 23 times as man servant, 21 times as bondsman, 10 times as bondage, and once as bond servant. When we move on to the New Testament, the word there for slave is doulos. Doulos occurs there 124 times but only once out of the 124 that King James um, used the word uh, slave or translated the word slave. Now, as I mentioned before, I believe that the decision to translate the King James Version and the other English versions of Scripture to omit or translate the word ebed and doulos into servant, maybe because of the contextual understanding of the community at that time. So that it does not convey those description or images that come to mind, but rather um, to, as if they were it was too harsh, and you didn't want to present that, it was almost distasteful to do so. And while it is true that the word "servant and "slave" may overlap in some function, I believe that they are different entirely in their meanings. For example, a servant can be hired. It seems that this person has some degree of autonomy. And some personal right. But when you are a slave, there's no freedom, no autonomy. Do you think you have some rights? Do you, you have the right to tell God who you say is your master? And every time you say Lord, you're calling him master. But do you understand? If he's master, then you have to be what? His partner? His advisor? But sometimes that's the way we approach God. But he would say, "God, let me tell you something. Do you know I have the scoop on this, the latest information, cutting-edge stuff?" And that's the way we react or relate to God. But if He is our Lord, we are His slaves. And so, to be a Christian, in the certainly, in the early uh, early church fathers and followers of Jesus Christ, meant simply that you are to be Christ slave. The Bible uses this image, like I mentioned before, more than any other designation for those of us who follow Christ. Now, uh uh-oh, before I say the benediction, (laughs) let me just say this. Romans chapter 6, just to show you, let's read it. Uh, um, Romans chapter 6, and I, I will Continue with this later this evening. Romans chapter 6 says this 14 through 23. Just to read it quickly in your hearing. But, but as a background, let me tell you some things because it's important always to give context so that you understand uh, um, what is being said. And so when you jump right in the middle, I need to know what just preceded that so I can have a more comprehensive understanding of the passage. But let me just say this, even in chapter five, let me just highlight some things that were mentioned that is attributed to you and I who are slaves of Jesus Christ. In chapter five, we are told this, that as slaves, we have been justified by faith, by his blood. Isn't that good news for slaves? We have also, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. I like that, that slave have peace with his master. There is no war going on, no friction. As slaves, we have had the introduction to his abundant grace. As slaves, we exalt in hope of the glory of God. As slaves, we exalt also in tribulations. We have also the love of God poured, brought in our hearts. As slaves, we have been given the Holy Spirit. As slaves, we have yet, and while we were yet sinners, God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet in that forsaken spiritual state. Christ died for us. As slaves, we have been saved from the wrath of God. As slaves, we have been reconciled to God. That's good news, my brothers and sisters. As slaves, we have received the gift of righteousness. So much so that by the time we got to chapter 5, verse 20, you know, it says that the law came in that transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's why It may be the people say what? Well, the law and causes more transgression than grace increases. So they thought, well, if I break more laws, I'll be causing more grace. I think I'm going to be an outlaw. But that's not what he says. He says, "Are you to continue in sin that grace might increase?" In other words, God forbid. He said, don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? In other words, believers, you may not know it, but you have died. And yet you are here. You've been, you, when Christ died, you died. That's an amazing truth. Let me just read for you. Romans chapter 14, sorry, chapter 6, verse 14 to 23. For sin for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves, if you're reading King James, they're you servant? Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of that one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, so that from the teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now I am speaking in human terms because of the weaknesses of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore what benefit were you then? deriving from the things in which you are ashamed. For the outcome of these things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derived your benefit, resulting in sanctification. And the outcome? Eternal life. And you know this very well. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I believe that from this passage it is unmistakable that the metaphor for a slave is very descriptive of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I say again that you and I, as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, we are his slaves. And as Christians, our full dedication, our sincere worship is reserved exclusively for Jesus Christ. The question is, do we fully comprehend the magnitude of our relationship with him? Are we fully devoted to him? Let me conclude by this recall a story that you're familiar with in Job, and I'm sure you remember Job, the story of Job when there was a special assembly and Satan showed up and was promptly interrogated by God himself. God asked him, where you come from? Where you been? Then God asks another question. He says, have you noticed my servant? Where the slave? Have you noticed my slave, Job? There is no one on the earth like him. Blameless, upright, and fears the Lord and shuns evil. Wow. What a character reference from God. There's no one like him on all the earth. He's blameless, upright, fears God, and rejects evil. Satan was not moved by that. As a matter of fact, he says, you think he's serving you for nothing? Then he says, you have placed a hedge around him and his house and all that he has, and you blessed everything he put his hand to, you bless blessed him. So what do you expect? He said, but if you, on the other hand, if you put your hand out and touch him, all that he has, I can assure you that he will cuss you to your face. That's the dialogue, Satan, or Satan's response to God. Well, you know the story. God gave him permission. Go ahead. Behold, all that he has is in your power, but only Don't touch him. Don't touch Job at all. And you know the story, the rest of the story. Job, grief was so intense that he tore his clothes, sat in the dirt, threw ashes on his head. But I like his response by the time he got to chapter 13. You know, he says, though he slay me, hey, yet will I trust him. It's amazing. Here's my concern as I conclude. If God were to walk through... This village, this morning, accompanied by Satan himself. Could God very confidently say, as he walked through from row 1 to row 17 and balcony, five and a half rows. Could he say as he passed by and points to each of us, that this one is my slave. This one is my slave. This one is my slave. Could God say that? Or would Satan interject, "Ah, excuse me. Not this one. I want that. That's mine. The only person who could answer that is you. The only person who can answer that is you. Here's a question. Is Jesus worthy enough to have you as a slave? Is he? Is Jesus worthy enough to have you as a slave? To be his slave Is to wear his badge. And being a slave of Jesus Christ is a badge of honor. Pinned on you by no one less than Jesus Christ himself. We sang earlier, all my hope is found in Christ alone. He is my light, my life, my strength. He is my song. That's the Jesus I'm talking about. Who is your master? Is he worthy? He is, and he was persecuted, and was brought to freedom. He was dead, and he brought life. He is risen, and he brings power. He reigns, and brings peace. The world, as we said before, the world can't understand him. The armies can't defeat him. The schools can't explain him. The leaders can't ignore him. Herod couldn't kill him. The Pharisees couldn't confuse him, and the people couldn't hold him. Nero couldn't crush him. Hitler. Couldn't silence him. The new age couldn't replace him. And Oprah Winfrey can't explain him away. (laughs) Like Paul, I too stand on this word. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What about you? Would you be willing to be His slave today? What a privilege. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for purchasing us, for we are not our own. We have been purchased with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Lord, even now in the sanctity of this moment, we rededicate ourselves to you. Those of us who have been designated your slaves. And yet, Lord, there are those who might be here who have been under another master. Master, cause sin that ultimately results in death. Lord, I pray that even now, you through the power of your Holy Spirit would so convict them, because their freedom, their emancipation has been paid for. All they need is to express the faith, that even that, that you provided, so that they too might experience the newness of life. These things, Father, I ask in Jesus' name, our Master, and all of God's slaves said, Amen. Thank you.